Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're back with part two of our series on the invention of the chainsaw. Now, last time I think we left off after we'd been talking about the reasoning behind chains as a as a cutting surface rather than just a uh, a solid blade or even as opposed to uh, giant circular saws. But this time we wanted to come back and talk a little bit more about the early history of power saws leading up to the modern chainsaw, as well as uh, some rather uh, rather distressing medical digressions. <laughs> well, before we get into the medical stuff, I want to come back to something I mentioned in passing in the last episode. I mentioned how I had I was vaguely familiar with stuff like the uh, the misery whip and other um, uh, you know lumberjacking techniques and technologies based on a cartoon that I saw when I was a kid, or probably saw more than once. You know, probably had on a VHS tape or something. Um, I described it, and our producer Seth who is well-versed in the, the cartoon universe, he told me, oh, well, that I think the one you're talking about is 1955's Up a Tree. Uh, this is a <laughs> Disney short featuring Donald Duck as well as Chip and Dale, and this is absolutely it. Uh, this is the one with scenes of, you know, Donald is chasing the, the chipmunks around, trying to cut down trees. There are all sorts of weird mishaps with saws. Do you remember this one at all, Joe? Certainly not in any detail, not in any more than the sort of images you described last time. 
Well, I'm going to cut right to the end and see if this rings a bell. This is the last two sentences from the Wikipedia summary for Up a Tree from 1955. Quote, all Donald can do is watch with dazed grief as his home is rocketed into the air and explodes three times. <laughs> Chip and Dale pretend to comfort Donald, then proceed to roll on the ground and laugh hysterically. <laughs> Chip and Dale, the sociopaths, they are bad friends. <laughs> Granted, I, you know, Donald did a lot of bad things before that. So he was very much getting his comeuppance. But if taken out of context, that sounds, that, that sounds pretty rough. No one should have to watch their home explode three times. And then be brutally mocked by chipmunks. Yeah. Now, wait, is this before Chip and Dale were ever rescue rangers? I thought they would need to be rescuing people whose house exploded three times. Oh, yeah, that was, that was decades later. That was like a 90s thing, right? Uh, oh, okay. Uh, yeah, this was, this was uh, back in the, the, the 50s when it was just all about, uh, you know, there, in a way there was kind of a, a very shallow environmental message here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> That uh, Donald is bad for going after their habitat and distressing their home, and Chip mm. and Dale are good for wanting to maintain uh, the pristine nature of their natural environment. The term is tree poaching. Donald was tree poaching. Ah, uh, also he was—I think he was being rather unsafe with some of the saws. Mm. I, I made that up, by the way. There, I've never heard of tree poaching. Well, I mean, it—it is—you it, 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 could certainly get into trouble for cutting uh, for felling trees on someone else's land. That would be a type of poaching, right? Especially if they're full of sentient chipmunks. Yeah. Uh, okay, okay. So the next thing that I think we have to talk about in the history of the chainsaw is uh, that we've been focused on the road leading to powered chainsaws for logging and construction. But you may well have seen a sort of viral Did You Know article floating around a couple of years ago talking about how the original invention of the chainsaw was as a medical device invented for use in childbirth. Now, one of, one of the really surprising things is that, in one sense, this is true. In the 18th century, there was such a thing as the obstetric chainsaw. However, as you might guess from the period, one big difference is that this was not a motorized device, which maybe makes this discovery even more alarming. Yeah, because when you... You hear the words medical chainsaw, it sounds ridiculous and potentially grotesque, or it sounds like the sort of futurist extrapolation you find in sci-fi where, you know, sometimes it'll be like in the future, chainsaws will be so small they can be used for surgical procedures, you know, where it's where you're like, actually, that that technology was not headed that direction. Sci-fi author, I'm not sure why you you chose to focus on that, um, but you 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 encounter that sort of thing in science fiction from time to time. Yeah, well, sometimes in uh, sci-fi medicine, you just get little like wands, little magic wands. Like one magic wand just opens the body up for whatever kind of procedure, and then you touch the body with another glowing wand, and it instantly heals. Yeah, like they, they basically had that technology in like Star Trek: Next Generation. Uh, yeah. they were or Jason X. And, oh yeah, that's right, Jason X. Here's a quick horror question for you, Joe. You're you're far better versed in the the Friday the Thirteenth uh, uh, world here, uh, the film universe. Did Jason Voorhees ever pick up a chainsaw, or did he just know that that would be gimmick infringement? That uh, that that was Leatherface's thing, and he should back off. I believe this is a point a lot of people are confused on. Uh, as far as I know, Jason has never wielded a chainsaw. The closest he ever gets is, I believe, in Friday the 13th, Part 7, which is the one in which he battles a girl with psychic powers. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, so that one's uh, 
quite funny and a lot of fun. But in that one, he does use a power saw, but it is not a chainsaw. It is a motor-driven hedge trimmer with a circular saw at the end of a long pole. Uh, mm. And he sticks it right into Terry Kaiser's abdomen. Ah, okay. So that 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 sounds right. He knew better. He knows better than to pick up the chainsaw. That's not his thing. He can have literally any other tool, but not the chainsaw. Right. He he doesn't want to get into legal trouble. Right. Plus, he's very much a stealth stalker type character, right? Right. Except, I guess this thing does make noise. I mean, Jason generally does not go for uh, for power tools. He prefers the classic, the manual implements, the machete. The big old stake or spike, uh, that's his mm-hmm. territory. Simple melee weapons, yeah. All right, well, getting back to medical chainsaws then. Um, the, the the paper we were looking at for this came from uh, Skippin et al., uh, and it was, it's titled The Chainsaw, A Scottish Invention, from the Scottish Medical Journal. Uh, uh, this is, uh, what, uh, 49, number two. This is from 2004. So as pointed out by Skippin et al. in, uh, in, in this paper, uh, the, the interesting thing is that we have two different Scottish inventors in the 18th century who may have independently come up with the concept of a medical chainsaw of sorts. And we do have to, cave- to have that caveat, of sorts. Um, and we're going to get to something that more closely resembles what we might, or at least checks off more of the, the boxes for what we think of as a chainsaw. Now, again, we're not talking about tiny gas-powered chainsaws. In fact, we're originally talking about a non-mechanical invention. We're talking about uh, a, quote, chain handsaw, a fine serrated link chain, which cut on the concave side. Uh, So this was handheld, hand-powered. You pull it back and forth, uh, very much in common with some of those chain-based cutting techniques that we were talking about in the first episode, wouldn't you say? Yeah, like one of the uh, power saw design, and again, this would not be powered, but one of the power saw designs we talked about in the previous episode was one where uh, a tree would be cut down with a cutting chain, but the chain did not revolve around a fixed bar. Rather, the chain rotated freely around the tree trunk to just saw right through it. Yeah. So the first of these inventions was devised in the early 1780s by Scottish surgeon, surgeon John Aitken. Uh, and was intended for use in childbirth, specifically for a symphysiotomy in which the cartilage of the pubic symphesis is divided to widen the pelvis, allowing childbirth. Um, now, this particular saw design um, was considered a promising method as it avoided potential damage to surrounding tissues if a scalpel was used. Um, but it was 1790 before the saw was produced. And uh, uh, as this paper just, uh, explains, it was never really widely picked up. Okay, so that's one of the designs. The second was devised by Scottish surgeon James Jeffrey as a means of removing diseased joints with having, without having to result to full limb removal. And one of the notable things about this saw, Jeffrey's saw, is that it actually did see a fair amount of use. It was a notable improvement over the stiff bone saw, and a version was even used in neurosurgery. And indeed, we did get to a mechanized version of this. So we went from something that, again, is like a chain that you pull back and forth to cut, and then you end up with this thing that was called an osteotome. This was a hand-cranked version of this that essentially had an infinite chain loop on it. Uh, You'd crank it, and you would have—it essentially would function like a little chainsaw. I mean, you look at a picture of it, and it looks like some sort of like a weird handheld steampunk uh, chainsaw dagger. 
One of the interesting things discussed in this uh, Scottish Medical Journal paper is the idea that these uh, chains for trying to cut through bone with as little damage to the surrounding tissue as possible were uh, uh, at least partially inspired by looking at watch chains from watches of the 18th century. Obviously, these would be bigger than those, though. Yeah, and and another big thing about this uh, this innovation and ultimately this whole like um, this whole area of innovation is that you want to move towards precision, but you, you also want speed. Uh, you're still performing, um, you know, so the, uh, either, either you're performing, uh, you know, in some cases you'd be still, would be talking about full limb removal, but otherwise you're, you're trying to get in there and remove uh, diseased and damaged uh, pieces and you want to get in and get out as quickly as possible, but also as, as precisely as possible. Yeah, and in the case of this uh, obstetric procedure that would cut through part of the pelvis in order in order to uh, widen the passage for childbirth, the the symphysiotomy procedure from the uh, 18th century, there was a pressure leading to this, which is that uh, of course you know there was a lot of mortality during childbirth at the time, and uh, the the process of cesarean section at the time uh, also had a high mortality rate for mothers, right. and so this was an alternative that was seen as something that could possibly lead to better outcomes in saving the life of both the mother and the child during delivery. But again, that one didn't really pick up so much, but the osteotome did. But as luck would have it, it was superseded by the giggly twisted wire saw in the late 19th century. So, uh, you know, even though uh, the osteotome was uh, was pretty advanced there for a minute, um, uh, it was beat in the race by this other uh, bit of sawing technology. The giggly twisted wire saw, uh, it was ultimately cheaper and it avoided the two main issues with the chainsaw, and that is breakage and the chain getting stuck in the bone. The giggly twisted wire a saw was narrower and it provided a quicker cut. And if the wire was damaged, it was easy to pull out. And then you could just use a fresh length of the wire. So there you go. Early chainsaws in 18th century medicine, though, again, we must stress not uh, not motorized chainsaws, but yeah, using chains for cutting bone. It does, in fact, go back to multiple inventions from the 18th century. I have to say that the, the just the just getting back to the, like the, the the frightening names of things, uh, the giggly twisted wire saw also sounds kind of uh, uh, terrifying, uh, and maybe it's because giggly also sounds a little bit like giggles. It sounds a little maybe mm-hmm. it makes me think of Doctor Giggles. Uh, uh, I'm not sure how this guy would have pronounced it. I think the guy that the the wire saw was named after was Leonardo Giggly, or this could be Gigli or Gigli. Because remember, Gigli. there was that movie with like Ben Affleck and whoever in it that was it was spelled the same way, and that one was called Gigli, but I don't know. Oh, I see. I didn't see that one. I saw Doctor Giggles instead. Uh, <laughs> well, which, you probably um, invested your time more wisely. <laughs> I don't know. That arguable, but I, I I was looking that up, and of course, Larry Drake was was great uh, in that. Larry Drake was uh, Drake always made for a nice villain, but. I was I, I had in my mind that like the character's name was Giggles, like he was Doctor Giggles. But no, he's Doctor Evan Rindle. Like that's huh. not scary. Why why would they call him Doctor Giggles? They should have just said his name is Doctor Giggles. We would have bought it. This is Stephen Giggles. Yes, <laughs> Stephen Millhouse Giggles. <laughs> I mean, it's a horror movie. It's like you can, you can lean into it. I mean, just ask um, ask um, Cronenberg. You know, it, it, you need to actually make the names a little bit removed from reality. Yeah, I, th- I think Dickens had the right philosophy for naming characters. Just go full idiophones. Like, the, the character's <laughs> name should sound like what they do. <laughs> Mr. Jaggers, Dr. Giggles. It, it's, it, it's all right there. It's just waiting yeah. for you. 
Uh, but I guess we should come back to the topic of uh, of early power saws leading up to the chainsaw in logging itself, in, in logging and woodworking. So there was a, sto- a source I mentioned in the previous episode that I just want to mention again because it's a good one and I've referred to it a number of times here. This is a book called Chainsaws, A History by David Lee with Mike Akers. Uh, and as I mentioned in the last episode, this is a very photography-focused book. It's just lots and lots of uh, beautiful photographs of gorgeous you know, nasty looking chainsaws in, in various poses, uh, sitting on mm-hmm. a log, sitting in a workshop, kind of rusty looking, uh, may- maybe kind of threatening somehow. I don't know, even though nobody's wielding it. It's full of vibes. But of course, like the title would imply, this book does trace a lot about the early history of uh, chainsaws and how we got to the the first models that people today would recognize as a chainsaw. You'd look at them and say, yep, that's what a chainsaw is. So I think in this uh, in this story we left off somewhere around the World War One era, and uh, and I guess that's where we'll pick up. Uh, Lee writes about this period, noting that there was one thing d- during this era that was an attempt at uh, mechanized solutions in logging that actually did not involve a cutting chain, but rather a wire. So this was something he calls the wire rope tree feller. Uh, and again, it might not count as a saw since it doesn't have teeth. Instead, the idea was just to use rapidly moving metal wires to cut down trees by pure friction as the wire was sort of dragged across the wood surface. Now, you can probably get some obvious disadvantages there. It's not going to be nearly as, as good at cutting through the tree. But I mean, uh, I don't know, maybe there's some trade off in that you wouldn't have to bother with sharpening it. You just realize, OK, we're just going to we're just going to rub this wire all to hell. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what I'd be afraid of. That wire gets all rubbed to hell, and then what if it snaps? Uh, I mean, you have a a cable like that snapping. Uh, it sounds like a very dangerous situation. Yeah, you wouldn't want to be standing near it. And here's another interesting idea that was apparently floated at some point. How about a metal wire heated by electricity? Okay, <laughs> you use the new technology of electricity to get that wire red hot and then just let it burn right through the wood as you're sliding it across the trunk. Well, that does sound like typical um, like electrical age enthusiasm. What can't electricity do for us? Uh, but yeah, that sounds awful because you're potentially just catching the trees on fire at that point. And there are some other things he mentions. There, there was something called a power feller, which looks like it's sort of just a, a saw that swings in an arc and, and gradually cuts its way through a tree. Uh, so I think this was, would be one with a fixed blade. And then another one that had just a bunch of augers that would like drill or bore holes down at the tree at the, at the ground level so it would fall over and not even really leave a stump. But uh, Lee highlights a big problem with almost all of these existing designs, which is that they were in reality no more efficient or not much more efficient than a couple of experienced sawyers with a misery whip. I mean, as grueling as the labor was, you know, it's hard work out there in the forest with a two-man crosscut saw working on a redwood. Uh, This was a a skill that people had developed and they'd gotten really good and fast at it. And of course, human bodies and human muscles are very versatile and bulky machines of this period are not very versatile. Uh, So it might, you know, you might have a machine that can cut through a tree faster than a human or maybe not even maybe that might not even be true. But even if it can might require a lot of setup it might have a lot of bulky equipment you got to move around and all that. And a lot of loggers were ultimately like, yeah, we, we, we've got our methods and they work just fine. So we'll stick with those. But nevertheless, there were some, uh, uh, some of these powered saws in the early 20th century. One, one thing that's kind of interesting is that it seems like 
even after the creation of the gas engine, and even after some chainsaw prototypes had been proposed, a lot of logging ventures still seem to prefer huge gas-powered drag saws, these ones with a solid blade that would just be working back and forth, powered by a motor. And I think the idea is that the big drag saw is uh, is just rugged. It's dependable. It's it's you know you know what you're getting there. It's it has less moving parts and less to get uh, broken up than than a chainsaw does. But at the same time, the chainsaw has its own advantages. It's lighter. It's smaller. It's faster at cutting, especially once you have some revolutions that would come later in uh, changes to the cutting surface. So changes to the the teeth on the chain and changes to the power source. But so how do you get from this era where where largely the misery whip and then big old drag saws are still very popular, say in the 20s through the 50s, to the modern chainsaw era that we know and love today? Well, Lee writes that one of the first chainsaws made for forestry uh, was a device called the Sector, which was invented by A.V. Westfelt in uh, Sweden in 1919. Uh, now, there's still some ways that this is not going to be much like a chainsaw that you would recognize today. For one thing, this model still separated the saw component from its power source. And the other thing is its shape. This is not uh, like the chainsaws you're picturing that have a long bar with a chain that rotates around them. This one has a weird wishbone shape. So you got to imagine a handle like on a shovel, but then that shovel handle splits into a Y fork, like a, you know, a Y peeler that you'd peel a potato with. And then at the two ends of the Y fork are powered rollers that quickly rotate a cutting chain. And the rollers are powered by an outboard motor that is connected via a drive shaft that looks like this short, thick tube. So you've got an outboard motor, and then that's got a drive shaft leading to this Y-shaped thing that's got a shovel handle on the end. And uh, and then you would use that to sort of, I guess, poke the, the peeler end, the Y end at the tree where the chain would cut it. I'm looking at a picture of it now, and this is the most one of the most incomprehensible inventions I've ever looked at. Like it's just, it it almost makes no sense. It 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 looks like the sort of thing where if Leatherface or Jason were to show up with it, you would just be like, no, no, go home, go home. Yeah, you yeah laugh at Leatherface, and then he gets all sad, and the sad music plays, and he walks off <laughs> hanging his head. And he'd need a friend. He'd need some family members with him. It looks like to carry this thing. Yeah, apparently that was one of the things that really interfered with pickup of the sector because the separate outboard motor made this model quite difficult to use. Like if you want to reposition it, you might have to reposition the two parts. And so it just looks like a, a real pain. Yeah. But you can see the beginning here. You can see how, okay, once you have this device, uh, if you were to refine this quite a bit, we could move towards something more like what we'd imagine a chainsaw being. Now, like a lot of the things we talk about on this show, uh, it's one of those inventions that comes about by iteration and combination. So it is hard to identify a single inventor or moment of invention for the chainsaw. Instead, it's like a lot of things kind of changing over time to look more and more like what we consider a chainsaw today. Uh, and it's a process that goes roughly from the mid-19th century until about 1920, by which time we finally start to get stuff that looks like a modern chainsaw. And one of the first commercially successful chainsaws of this form we would recognize today is the Wolf. Uh, it's just serendipity that they have these great names. 
mm-hmm. because this wasn't like a, a brand name somebody came up with. It was actually a dude's name. Uh, so this was, <laughs> yeah, this was a machine produced by a, a firm founded in 1920 by an American engineer named Charles Wolf. Uh, Wolf was born in 1871. I've seen a claim a couple of places that Wolf was involved in the creation of the first modern submarine for the U.S. Navy under the direction of John Holland in the 1890s. Uh, so th- this was mentioned in Lee's book, and I saw it referenced in another article, but I was looking for, I don't know, more solid historical information on that, and I couldn't find it. So I don't know about that, but th- I-, I have at least seen that claimed. But whether or not he had submarine experience, according to his son Jerome, Charles Wolfe was an extremely experienced engineer who'd worked on a number of different uh, types of projects. So he worked on electric railways, on uh, transportation infrastructure like bridges and tunnels. He worked on uh, dams and, and water systems. And he had some experience in the 19 aughts and, and the 1910s with sawmills and lumber. And at some point while he was working in, in the lumber world, he came across a prototype chainsaw that was never put into commercial production. Uh, but then the, the idea apparently stuck with him. And then eventually, along with an electrical engineer named Frank Redman, Wolf came up with a design for an electrically powered chainsaw of basically the form we see today. So it's a cutting chain that moves along the outside of a flat bar. It's driven by an electrically powered sprocket with teeth based on the classic design of the crosscut saw blade, uh, the teeth of the, the cutting chain, not the teeth of the sprocket. Sorry. And this would be the wolf. Rob, I've attached a picture of the wolf for you to look at. Um, uh, the company would go on to develop many subsequent variations. They eventually had a, a, a compressed air-driven model, and I think eventually, many years later, even an, an internal combustion model. But this electric chainsaw really seems like the granddaddy. Yeah, I mean, you look at this, and you're told that this is the wolf, and you you agree, this is the wolf. This look, <laughs> this this is a a, a brutal looking uh, tool right here. It looks like the kind of thing that some sort of uh, like a futuristic um, cave troll would wield in some sort of um, you know a combat scenario. It's a uh, and 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 also it, it weirdly looks like it has a screaming face on the. Um, I guess what we might infer to be the pommel or the or part of the hilt of the chainsaw. Where's the screaming face? I'm not seeing it. Uh, look at the uh, turn your head sideways. Uh, oh, the I see it the now. Body, and then yeah, the top is this head that's kind of going. Oh. It's not kinda screaming. Ha- it's a muppet face. <laughs> no, no, no. It's not screaming. It's singing an angelic chorus of joy for the power that is now in your hands. <laughs> uh, but yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. This does look like something that would be like fused onto the wrist of a super mutant in in whatever kind of wasteland or um or it, actually this looks like this should be what Leatherface was carrying instead of that green chainsaw that nobody remembers the color of. But he would he would have needed uh, electricity for it, right? Well, yeah, I guess at least this first model, yeah, that, yeah. that would make so, it uh, probably difficult to run around in the. So in that the would weeds. be a great scene, though. Like he's about to get you, but then he runs a little bit too far, and it unplugs <laughs> the chainsaw. <laughs> Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. 
And it's so fast acting, uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use this directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Elia Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes... I guess identify the life that I want and and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. 
Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The one thing that's interesting to note, so we think of the chainsaw as being primarily for logging, for, you know, taking down trees and bucking them out in the forest, uh, though several sources I've looked at note that the wolf did not actually take over the logging business. Uh, that you might call this the first commercially viable, commercially uh, mass-produced chainsaw, but it was really more popular for work with prepared lumber, for example, in construction. Its real advantage was that it could quickly make fine, accurate cuts. And in the, the decades following this, other mass producers would enter the game, such as uh, German companies like Steel and Dolmar and more and more. So the chainsaw is on its way now, but we need actually one more major innovation before it really takes over the logging world. And this is what brings us to Joe Cox and the so-called bug chain. Uh, so I, I loved when I came across this story, because who would have thought it, even the history of the chainsaw has important episodes of biomimetic engineering in it. Hmm. Um, so, yes, let us speak of the bug chain. So in the 1940s, uh, the misery whip was still in wide use in the United States, even though plenty of power saws had been brought to market by this time. Uh, and for a while, I think you could blame this on power saws being too big, too bulky, too delicate, dependent on external power sources and so forth. But by the 40s, you had better designs. You had more compact internal combustion designs, and yet there were still problems. And so here I want to start referring to a uh, paper that I was reading called A Lesson from Nature, Joe Cox and His Revolutionary Saw Chain by Ellis Lucia. Now, Lucia says that one big problem with, uh, with widespread take-up of the chainsaw was problems with the cutting chain. Uh, these chains of the, the 1940s were modeled on the blades of traditional cross-cut saws. So if you picture a misery whip or one of these cross-cut saws, you can probably see it in, in your mind that it has these, these sharp, sort of razor-sharpened teeth that would be dragged through the kerf. Remember, that's the cut part of the tree trunk. To mm -hmm. cut to knock away wood essentially by scratching at it with a sharp surface. So Lucia compares this to rapidly dragging the tip of a knife or a sharp nail over the wood. And so, of course, this does work for sawing things if you apply enough force. But uh, Lucia says actually there was a lot of waste and the cutting teeth on the chains would tend to get dull very fast. So this, uh, again, led to a lot of wasted time having to resharpen dull chains. And so in many cases, loggers thought that the old crosscut saws were still more efficient even as late as the 1940s. But Lucia writes that this was upended by changes in the saw chain design that can be traced back to this American logger and engineer named Joe Cox. Uh, so short bio on Joe Cox. It seems like he had about a million jobs. He was uh, born in Oklahoma in 1905. He left home at 16 to work in railroad shops in Colorado. And then from here, he, uh, he went on through uh, apprenticeships and self-teaching to become a qualified machinist. He worked at an auto agency and at a bus line where he learned a lot about mechanics and engine repair. And then he worked building a gas line in San Francisco. And then he helped to build, according to this article, some powdered milk processing plants which I assume were somewhere in Northern California or near San Francisco, 
which makes me wonder, could Joe Cox have been involved in building the Northern California Dairy Works plant that is featured in Halloween 3? Oh, the one that's supposed to be the Silver Shamrock factory. No answer on that, but I am mighty intrigued. (laughs) Uh, But he operated a welding shop in Arizona. He did auto repair. He was an electrician. Uh, He did some wiring in in homes. Uh, He designed a home water heater product, and he did some welding for uh, some oil drilling concerns in Texas. But then he eventually moved along with his brother to Oregon, where they got involved in the logging industry. And it was here, working as a logger and a logging engineer, that he noticed there was plenty of room to to improve on the chains being used in these less than impressive power saws of the day. And this article actually uh, has an interview with Joe Cox. It was written at a time when when he was still alive. So I want to include some of his quotes because they're great. I like the way he talks. Uh, He's describing working with his brother in the Oregon logging industry, and he says, We felled, limbed, and bucked small, frozen, knotty pine timber in three feet of snow our first winter here. We were paid 50 cents a thousand. We earned about $4 in 10 hours of hard work, and it was hard. And so the way Cox tells the story, one morning he and his brother were uh, working out somewhere east of the Cascades, and they were asked to try out a new power saw, which was a stump saw mounted on wheels uh, with the chain uh, allegedly driven by a motorcycle engine, which that, that's cool. That, that's hacking. And Cox says that they could immediately see that this power saw was just not very good. Like they could actually fall a tree quicker with the hand saw. And then I want to again read his direct quote. This seems strange to me because the power saw had plenty of stuff. Uh, So I I think he's saying by that that he recognizes that the motor that's driving it is powerful and should outperform human muscles if the cutting edge were better, if that were more efficient. Mm. And he goes on, I was a pretty fair filer at the time and figured that if I could make a power saw cut as efficiently as a cross cut, it should practically fall through the wood. It just made sense, and with such a cutting tool, sawing timber would be a lot easier. And so according to this story Cox tells, he had a breakthrough one day when uh, he was out in the woods, and he whacked a rotten stump with an axe, accidentally revealing a cavity in the wood that had been made by the larvae of a well-known and much-reviled insect of the area, the timber beetle, or Ergotis spiculatus. Uh, I looked this insect up, but apparently it's also known as the pine sawyer beetle. It has a very large, very beautiful, uh, disgustingly beautiful, almost arrachis belonging uh, larval form that, I I don't know, Rob, how would you describe this creature? Um, Yeah, I think that all matches up. It also just screams protein. Like, if if you're a bird, (laughs) you're excited looking at these photos. You just plop one of these in a hot dog bun and you're set. Yeah, I mean, you know, it looks, in a way, it looks like a big old shrimp. Shrimp of the woods. (laughs) Yeah, that's fresh, man. Catch of the day. Uh, so one of the photos I found of this thing is of somebody holding one in their hand, and it's like it's as big as the palm of their hand almost. Yeah, it's this is a big, big boy for sure. I didn't have time to research this, but I am curious now if this particular um, uh, larva is edible uh, by humans. So uh, I don't know if there are any foragers out there that can uh, let us know. Uh, email us. Okay, now here I want to read directly a section from Lucia's article because this is wonderful. 
So Lucia writes, the larvae of this beetle, cursed in the kind of verbiage formerly applied to oxen by the old bullwhackers, have an amazing ability for cutting and destroying huge quantities of timber, although the busy grub is hardly the size of a stout man's finger. I don't know, that that seems sizable to me. Continuing, the hated grub turns good timber into sawdust, and it doesn't matter whether the trees are alive or sound snags and windfalls that might be salvaged. The winged adult beetle deposits its eggs beneath the bark of a dead tree, or, when faced with an overpopulation problem, under the bark of living trees. The vast Tillamook burn and the other regional forest disasters promised feasts that would last the timber beetle and his offspring many generations, although the way they worked, wholesale destruction of salvageable timber might be accomplished in a few brief years. So this larva is a workhorse. And Cox claims he was looking at this little larva and, and marveling at it and wondering how it was so good at tunneling through the stiff fibers of tree trunks. And so he tells that he armed himself with a magnifying glass and began to study closely the cutting and boring behavior of this grub. And what he discovered was that rather than scraping or scratching at the wood straight ahead, instead the larva would move side to side, sort of shaving out parts of the wood with C-shaped jaws. And so inspired by the jaws of this larva... Cox went on to design a cutting chain for saws based on exactly this type of action. So I was trying to understand exactly what the difference was here, and I, I think I finally got it. So th the chains that came before tended to have these cutting teeth, sharp teeth, which would scrape at the wood like a knife, and they would alternate with what were called raker teeth, which were these hook-shaped bumps designed to scoop away debris after it had been cut away from the wood by the sharp teeth. And that would clear out the kerf. Mm, okay. So that, that's the old design. But I found the new design described in an article uh, written for Offbeat Oregon, which is uh, like an Oregon-based sort of weird local history column. And this was written by Finn J.D. John in September 2018 called Watching Bugs in a Stump Led to the Modern Chainsaw. And John describes the, uh, the new design, uh, Cox's design, like this. The cutting teeth were hook-shaped chisels that would bite into the wood and essentially carve away chips. And those chips were big enough and clean enough that rakers weren't necessary to clear them out of the kerf. Finding that the chisels t uh, tended to grab too much wood, Joe added a bump in the metal just in front of the chisel on each link of, uh, of the chain. By filing down the bump or gauge, he could control how big a bite each chisel took. Uh, hmm. And then I found a picture also for us to look at, Rob. So it looks like with, with Joe Cox's design, uh, the cutting side is on the top of this diagram you're looking at now. And so what it looks like is the cutting side has these little sort of curved chisels. The cutting teeth are tube-shaped blades alternating from one side of the chain to the other. So shaving out a little tube-shaped chip on the left and then doing one on the right back and forth forever. So I think the difference is that instead of cutting like a sharp-bladed saw, just like a knife point, this would shave out a kind of thin tunnel. And apparently the chain that Joe Cox designed cut faster and more cleanly than the chains that came before and needed less resharpening. So this 
this was a, a clear improvement. He patented his design, and eventually in 1947, he founded a firm called the Oregon Sawchain Corporation, which was later known as Omark, which would become a multi-million dollar company and would revolutionize the power saw business. And at this point, by the 1950s, I think this is when we hit the turning point, and there's really no going back from the chainsaw to the misery whip, I guess, unless you were just trying to make a point or something. There, there would be no Texas misery whip massacre. <laughs> A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Elia Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes... I guess, identify the life that I want and and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for deliverance. Every time I have one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast in the United States and number 15 on business in the United States. And it has amazing guests such as Alex Hermosi, Layla Hermosi, Cody Sanchez. We pull in these amazing interviews with other people that are not only great marketers, but actual operators. And the icing on the cake is Neil and myself were also operators as well. So we share learnings from the trenches. We share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people. And we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, I think this is a great place to come come back to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and, and also just to discuss, like, what is the, the cultural trajectory of the chainsaw from here on out? Uh, I was reading a bit about this in the, uh, the Iconicity of Chainsaws from the Backyard to the Barbecue by Christopher Curry. And he writes the following, quote, two years, 1950 and 1974, are vital in understanding the iconicity of the, the petrol-powered, handheld, single-operator chainsaw. 1950 was the year in which the tool was introduced to the American market. It was a backyard revolution. Men were empowered with a remarkable new technology for clearing undergrowth, trimming branches, and felling trees. Okay, so you no longer need to be an experienced logger or have a buddy to work the misery whip with you. Just one person with one power tool can go out there and master the landscape. Exactly. Now, 74 that he mentions, that, of course, is when Texas Chainsaw Massacre comes out. And that's that's a, that's kind of a, where he keeps you know ping-ponging back and forth between like the, the cultural role of the chainsaw and how it is reflected in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Uh, and, and I think it's, it's worth driving home here that... Uh, if you don't know much about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, maybe you've seen it, you've seen it once, uh, you know, saw it years ago. It's easy to dismiss it and think it's just this, it's just this shocking work that's about titillation. Uh, but uh, Toby Hooper had, he had political ambitions in creating the film. Like he wanted to make a political film that wasn't about politics. He wanted, uh, so it's not a film that is just about chainsaws roaring, uh, you know, in, in a rural setting and chasing people and blood and screams. Um, it is trying to say something. And I think, you know, arguably it, it, it does a fantastic job doing so. Uh, tell me more. Okay. So, uh, Curry writes that the chainsaw though, during this period, it was imbued with the power of both a status symbol and a phallic symbol for its predominantly male users of this time. Uh, additionally, it became a thoroughly American symbol of status and power as, quote, cutting down trees it is an especially significant part of American history, which which is true. I mean, that is part of the uh, the, the story of the, the, the colonization of North America by Westerners, uh, by Europeans. Um, and then, you know, what do you have? You have these expansive forests. What do you do with those expansive forests? Well, you start cutting them down. Um, and, uh, and, and of course, to a certain extent, that makes sense because what does wood give you? Wood gives you homes. It gives you, it gives you ships. It gives you, um, you know, all these things you can create out of it, all your tools, uh, but also wood meant, meant fuel as well. And so here comes the chainsaw, uh, and it allows you to harvest, uh, material and, and, uh, and fuel 
for energy production. Quote, such a radical technological transformation of the basic means to cut down trees sidles up alongside such intrinsically American notions as self-determination, manifest destiny, the logging industry, and the myth of frontier. And so from here, Curry goes on to argue that the Texas Chainsaw Massacre massacre very much builds on all of this. Uh, the Sawyer family, the, the the Chainsaw family, if you will, in uh, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, cannibalism and murder aside, they are a rural version of the American dream. They are entrepreneurs doing what they have to do to survive in the face of of economic and social change. Uh, yes, they're they're rather self sufficient, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, and and this again, this was very much intentional on, on on Toby Hooper's part, commenting on consumer culture, and the chainsaw is all about consumption. Again, it, it, either it, in its intended role is that of a tool for the consumption of trees, uh, for the for the material uses and for fuel uses, or in this extrapolated fantastic role as a weapon of murder and dismemberment. So you know, it, it ultimately becomes a situation. It's easy to lose this because we're we're so fascinated with the idea of the chainsaw as weapon but it's like leatherface is is uh, is is felling humans it's humans as trees cut down to sustain others because remember they weren't just uh, it wasn't just about cutting up um teenagers from the city it was about making barbecue out of them it's supply and demand now one thing i've never noticed before we did this episode is that the family in the texas chainsaw massacre are named the sawyers which uh, the sawyers uh, are the people who work the saws in the logging industry <laughs> i you never know, put that together either uh, until, the, until the guys this manning manning the misery whip they're sawyers it, it does follow the dickens convention yeah, it does it does what do they do they saw <laughs> um I was also thinking a bit about the line, the saw is family. Um, I think that's predominantly from Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, right? Yeah. Part of a a fun little bit of grisly dialogue in there. But the idea that the saw is family. And what is the saw? Uh, As Curry points out in this article, the saw is consumption. The, The saw is this way of life through consumption. So, of course, the saw is family. And I think... Uh, this is ultimately a rather biting commentary on the American way of life. You know, hmm. our lives are consumption. You cannot separate consumption from all of these other ideals of what we are and what we want out of the world, out of out of life, and out of like just the raw substance of the country. Yeah. Okay. And so, if this is the intended point, it makes sense that you would use the chainsaw because uh, I think we were talking about this at the very beginning of the first episode. Something about the uh, the aesthetic impression made by the chainsaw is kind of alarming at the rate at which it like goes through things. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I, I also I had to look up the exact quote uh, from TCM two because it's it's actually pretty good. This is Drayton, uh, the old uh, one of the, the the older member of the family, not the old old man who can you know, barely move, but the, uh, the, 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 the younger old man in the family. And he's telling Leatherface, he's saying, you have one choice, boy, sex or the saw. Sex is, well, nobody knows, but the saw, the saw is family. So uh, that, that kind of gets into sort of these, uh, the, these phallic ideas, too, and the masculine aspects that are tied up in the chainsaw and its role in uh, American culture. The idea that uh, on, on one level you have, you have potential creation, um, but, but who knows what comes with creation? Creation is a risk, but consumption, we know exactly where consumption goes. We know where, where the saw leads to. That is the, the safe way. That is the traditional way. And of course, that is the, the, the way that the, the Sawyer family sticks to. 
The saw is yet another Texas chili cook-off competition trophy. <laughs> you know, coming back to the to the technological side, one of the things that really interests me in reading about the story of, of Joe Cox and the redesign of the chainsaw blade is that we managed to have all these decades of people having the idea to apply new types of, of power motors and engines to drive saws to like make sawing more powerful to outstrip what could be done by human muscles, but going so long in this process without making these significant improvements to the cutting chain like Joe Cox would, um, that, that would eventually revolutionize the power saw business. It, I don't know. It, uh, something seems metaphorically significant there as well. Yeah. And, and, and also perfect that they turn to, to larvae, uh, to to get this answer because you know what are what do larvae do they consume that's all they do like that's the job of a larva is to consume and grow bigger so that it can take on the next stage of its of its life so in a way it's like the perfect spirit animal for the chainsaw as well so i i feel like these episodes have forced me to think long and hard about like, to to rethink the role of the chainsaw in texas chainsaw massacre but there's plenty of other room to to you know to to consider uh, as well, like what? How do we uh, interpret the chainsaw in the Evil Dead movies? What does that mean? Why? Why is it groovy? And is it truly groovy? I don't know. Oh, that, that seems very different somehow. Uh, when Ash picks up the chainsaw to wield against the demons or the deadites, that almost seems mm -hmm. like it is somehow an emblem of of human civilization and human technology, the 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 good and ordered part of the world, which, you know, is is the one thing you can hold to sort of like man the gates of Thermopylae against <laughs> uh I don't know, against the advancing magical deem uh you know, whatever you call it. where do the deadites come from? I don't even remember. Um from the Dead World? I, I don't oh, know. Okay. <laughs> the, the, the hell, maybe they're uh, bad. They're not human. Yeah, they're bad. They're, yeah, they're yeah. not bad. I mean, they Something's are bad. Right. They're not human. Yeah. Uh, it's also worth thinking about the fact that we've tried. We're talking about like in the, the, the Leatherface um, area, and also in this sort of uh, again coming back to this uh, this sort of masculine interpretation of the chainsaw in American culture. It, very much this idea that like the chainsaw as extension of of the of human identity and the human body. Ash actually makes the chainsaw a part of his body by right. replacing his hand with a chainsaw, um, which is, of course, wonderfully, um, you know, on brand and over the top, especially for the, the third movie. Oh, yeah. What does it say that your hand can be possessed by a demon, but your chainsaw can't? Yeah. Like the, the hand is corruptible. The chainsaw is beyond corruption. Don't trust the flesh. Turn, trust the saw. All right. Well, there you have it. Uh, the chainsaw, the invention of the chainsaw, and uh, and hopefully more than enough um, seasonal horror consideration thrown in there as well uh, to keep things uh, nice and Halloween-y. In the meantime, if you would like to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you know where to find them. Check the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. We have core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays, Artifact on Wednesday, Listener Mail on Monday, and then on Friday we do Weird House Cinema. That's our chance to to just really uh, you know bear down and talk about a weird movie uh, uh, for uh, an extended period of time. And then over the weekend, we usually run a Vault episode, which is a rerun. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer seth nicholas johnson if you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hello you can email us at contact at stuff to blow your mind.com stuff to blow your mind is a production of iHeartRadio. for more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite shows Thank you.
Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was wounded. But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.